It's crucial that you understand that every aspect of the unbeliever's heart has been darkened. His mind is dark. He cannot think accurately and correctly. His emotions are dark and don't function properly. His will is dark and operates in total rebellion against God's law. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue Tom's series in Romans 1, titled God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. In Paul's first major section in Romans, he gives extensive treatment to the sinful rejection of mankind to God and His goodness. But why does Paul devote such great attention to explaining the bad news about the depravity and wickedness of mankind? Well, as Tom will show, it's because understanding man's sinfulness is the first part of embracing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, friend, you'll never understand the beauty of Jesus Christ without understanding the darkness of your own sin. Let's join Tom Pennington right now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. From God's perspective, as revealed in the Bible, there is only one correct worldview, and it's Christian theism. But our world is filled, in fact, our lives are filled with people who have rejected, at least in part, that worldview, and who have embraced a different mindset, a different philosophy. They have come to hold a substitute for reality. And as Christians, we must not follow their example. We must not think as the pagans around us think. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul makes this very clear in this text. In fact, you'll note a lot of similarities, a lot of parallelism between this text and the one in Romans 1. Ephesians 4 verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. You can see the similarities, but notice what he says in verse 17. He says, I say, and it's not just me, the Lord says this to get with me, that you should no longer walk as the pagans, specifically in the futility of their thinking, in their futile speculations is what he's talking about. Now, this is especially interesting in light of the context of Ephesians. Hold your finger there and go back to chapter 2. As you know, this is my, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead. This is us before Christ and all unbelievers. You were dead because of your trespasses and sins. And in those sins, you formally walked, and specifically, you walked in lockstep with, in slavery to, the course of this world, or literally, the age of this cosmos. It's an unusual expression. Well, the way we could translate it is this way, the spirit of the age. In other words, you were in lockstep when you were before Christ. You were in lockstep with the thinking and value system of the world in which you lived. You were enslaved to it. But what happened to us? Verse 5, 
Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made us alive. We're new in Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, live in keeping with that new person that you are. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And part of that, verse 17, is stop thinking like you used to think. Stop embracing the worldviews that you used to embrace and stop thinking like the pagans around you. Instead, embrace God's revelation. So hard-hearted rebellion then leads to flawed thinking. Go back to Romans 1 because there's a second consequence of man's rebellion, his refusal to glorify God, his refusal to give thanks. Not only flawed thinking, but a darkened heart. Verse 21 goes on to say, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, when you see the word heart in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, don't think of the way we use the English word heart. That's not it at all. In biblical terms, The heart describes the real you, the center and source of your inner life. It is the hub of man's spiritual existence. Your heart is the fountain from which all of your thoughts, your words, your deeds flow. It is where you perceive, where you reflect, where you deliberate, where you assess, where you conclude. In fact, let's put it this way. The heart is where you think. Turn to Romans chapter 10. As Paul deals with the gospel that he preaches in verse 8, he says, This message that I preach is near you. It's in your heart. And specifically, verse 9, if you will believe in your heart that. So he's talking about facts. You have to believe facts about Jesus Christ. This is where you think. Your heart is where you think. But your heart is also where you experience emotions. Turn over to chapter 9, verse 2. As he thinks about the lostness of Israel, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. You experience emotions in your heart. You make decisions in your heart. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 5. As he talks about the unrepentant religionist, He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, your heart is where you make a decision not to repent, to be stubborn against what you know. So understand then, your heart is all of that. It's where you think, it's where you experience emotions, it's where you decide. Now look at how Paul describes the pagan's heart. He says, first of all, they're foolish heart. The the Greek word for foolish here is literally without understanding. In fact, the exact same Greek word is used down in verse 31. Notice how it's translated there, without understanding. They're without understanding heart. Now, wait a minute. Verse 20 says they understood. No, they did understand, but they did what to that understanding? They suppressed it. They refused it. So now they have a self-imposed lack of understanding. And notice how Paul continues to describe them. He says, their foolish heart was darkened. 
The sinner's self-imposed lack of understanding of the world and reality produces a darkened soul. Folks, when someone decides to walk away from the light of God's revelation, I don't care who it is, darkness descends over the mind, over the emotions, over the will. His mind cannot think accurately. His emotions cannot function properly. His will operates in total rebellion against God. His soul is characterized by darkness, the absence of light. What does that mean? Well, in Scripture, light and darkness are always used of two different realities. Light speaks of truth and moral purity. Truth and moral purity. Therefore, darkness speaks of error and falsehood and moral impurity. I think the emphasis here in this text on thinking has primarily to do with the absence of truth and the embracing of error and falsehood. This is the darkness that fills the pagan's heart. Now, the irony in this is profound. Do you see it? I mean, think about this. When the sinner rejects God's light in Revelation and turns to his own way, to some other way, what does he always claim to have found? Enlightenment. It's enlightenment. That's what the secularist claims. That's what the humanist claims. That's what the evolutionist claims. That's what the the one involved in naturalism claims. But from God's perspective, abandoning God and his revelation never produces light, but always darkness. Now, darkness has a defining quality, and that is it destroys, always destroys, our sense of reality. Guys, let me give you a little clue about something you can do. If your man space at home, your shop or your office or whatever it might be, is kind of cluttered and dirty and your wife is troubled by that, just turn down or out the light. (laughs) Because that will hide everything. It changes the perception of reality. Paul's point is that every sinner at the very center of his person has a settled darkness. Paul makes a similar point in Ephesians 4.18, as we saw a moment ago. There he describes not the hearts, but the minds of unbelievers as darkened. He uses a Greek word that speaks of complete darkness, not simply dimmed, but blacked out. The light is completely gone. There is a complete absence of light in the thinking process of man. By the way, that's why we can't trust human reason As brilliant as man can be, his reasoning power has been darkened. His intellect, apart from God, will never lead him to a full and complete understanding of anything. One of the books I'm reading is Kevin Swanson's book, Apostate, The Men Who Destroyed the Christian West. Swanson documents how the leading thinkers and philosophers of Western civilization have all been apostates in biblical terms. They have all known and claimed the truth of Christianity, at least to some degree, and then they have abandoned that to pursue their sin. Without exception, this is true of the leading philosophers who have influenced Western culture. I'm thinking of men like Rene Descartes, John Locke, 
Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Charles Darwin, John Dewey, John Paul Sartre. All of these men were apostates. They claimed some form of Christianity, but they abandoned it to pursue their sin. And eventually their rebellion against God led to darkened minds that generated worthless worldviews and philosophies. And their influence has permeated Western civilization and the darkness has grown deeper. It's crucial that you understand that every aspect of the unbeliever's heart has been darkened. His mind is dark. He cannot think accurately and correctly. His emotions are dark and don't function properly. His will is dark and operates in total rebellion against God's law. There's a third consequence of man's rebellion against the true God, and this one's surprising. Self-confident foolishness. Self-confident foolishness. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The Greek word professing means to state something with confidence, to assert, to claim. And what do these people claim with great confidence? To be wise. You know the Greek word, it's sophos, from which we get English words like sophisticated, philosophy, and so forth. It means wise. In the first century, this word was often connected, as it is in English, to philosophy. You see, Paul's point is that those with darkened minds confidently claim that they are highly intelligent and have profound insight into the world and into reality. You see why Romans is so practical? Folks, this is, this is our newspaper. This is the comments after an article on the Internet. This is the article itself as it makes these postulates and affirmations which give the pretense of human wisdom, profundity. But notice what Paul says. In claiming to be sophos, wise, they have become moros, is the Greek word, from which we get the word moronic. By claiming to be intelligent and philosophically profound, having cut themselves off from God their creator, they have made themselves out to be moros. There's great irony in this as well. Because the product of hard-hearted rebellion, of willful ignorance, of flawed thinking, of darkened minds, leads to a proud, self-confident, foolishness. This is the story of our times. Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. I love the insight of Isaiah in Isaiah 47, 10. He's talking about the Babylonians. Listen to their worldview and how it crashed in on them. Isaiah 47:10. you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. It's a closed system. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah is dealing with Judah's sin, and he makes a remarkable comment here. Jeremiah 8, and look at verse 8. He's dealing with specifically the spiritual leaders of the nation. 
How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Here are people who attach themselves to the truth, but they take the truth and distort it so that the result is the opposite of the truth. It's a lie. Boy, does this go on today in supposed Christianity. Verse 9, the wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. Did you notice that? To distort the word of God, to claim it, but to distort it as the scribes were in Jeremiah's time was ultimately and truly to reject it. And therefore, verse 9 says, what kind of wisdom do they have? The answer is none at all. None at all. Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Corinthians were enamored with first century Greek philosophy. They loved the wisdom of the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. The only way you'll ultimately be truly wise is to acknowledge your foolishness. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. God's not enamored with the intelligentsia of our age. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So even though the views they hold are irrational, they don't get it. They are utterly convinced of their own perspective. At the very point of their greatest blindness and darkness, they boast about their intelligence. They're like the Peanuts cartoon where Lucy says, I've never made a mistake. I thought I did once, but I was wrong. <laughs> That's how they think about their view of the world. So man's first response to general revelation is hard-hearted rebellion against the true God, and that rebellion has far-reaching consequences. It leads inexorably to flawed thinking, a darkened mind, and self-confident foolishness. The result of that is a profound darkness that permeates the soul of every pagan. And there's only one hope for that darkness. It's the light of the gospel. Paul makes that point here in Romans. We're going to see that unfold. But let me show you a condensed version. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul's talking about his ministry of the gospel. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. In other words, Paul says, listen, I don't have a secret life of shame. I'm not like the false teachers who are driven by money and sexual favors from women. I don't have a secret life of shame. And he says, we don't walk in craftiness. In other words, I'm not trying to manipulate you, deceive you, nor am I adulterating the word of God. I'm not like the scribes in Jeremiah's time who are twisting it to make it say what I want it to say. But here's what I'm doing. He says, I am manifesting the truth. I'm putting the truth on display, commending the truth to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says, I simply take the truth and lay it out in front of man. Now, have you ever asked yourself, why don't more people believe the gospel? I mean, it's amazing. Why wouldn't someone respond in, a, in a affirmation of the gospel and want what the gospel offers? 
Well, here's the reason, part of the reason. Verse 3, it's because our gospel is veiled. It's hidden from view. It is veiled to those who are perishing, to the lost. How did this happen? In whose case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world system in which we live, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light. And where is the light? It's in the gospel of the glory of Christ. We live in a world of darkness, but God sent his son. He sent the light, as we read in John 1. He sent the light into the world in the incarnation And the light lived among us, and he shed that light around. He taught us the truth about everything. He became the eternal God, became man. And he lived on this planet as a perfect man. He lived exactly as God had stipulated man should live, as you should have lived. And then he suffered the justice of God on the cross, enduring the penalty in the place of all of those who would ever believe. And then God raised him from the dead. That's the light. And that's the only light that expels the darkness that's in the human soul. So how do you deal with this? What do you do with this light? Verse 5, you just preach it. You just share it with others. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. You proclaim the truth... You say, well, but that's not enough. Not everyone's going to respond. No one's going to respond left to themselves to that message. So what happens? Look at verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. He's taking us back here to the creation, back to the physical creation of light. You remember how God did it? God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke light into existence. Verse 6 says, For the God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. You take the truth of the gospel, and like Paul, you preach it. You share it with others. You lay it out there before them. You bring the light of Jesus Christ before them. And then when God is pleased, he steps into that life and into that heart, and he says, let there be light. And the light turns on, and the darkness is gone. This is the only hope for the darkness. I was asking myself this week, why is Paul taking so much time to explain the response of the immoral pagan to God? Why is he doing that? There are a number of reasons, but let me give you three to think about. Number one, to exalt the work of Jesus Christ and increase our praise and adoration. Paul's always about this. He wants to exalt Christ. Number two, I think Paul includes this detailed explanation to help us understand unbelievers around us, to be more concerned about them and to share the gospel with them. Listen, folks, the people in your life who aren't in Christ, they live in the darkness and the darkness lives in them and they have no hope unless someone like you and like me 
unless we take the light of the gospel to them so that if some point God, the sovereign God, chooses, he can take that light that has been shared with them and speak into their hearts, let there be light. I think there's a third reason Paul takes so much time here, and that is to show all unbelievers their true condition and drive them to Christ. Listen, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you live in the darkness. And the darkness lives in you. This is the reality. Jesus' invitation to you, he says, I'm the light. Come to me and you'll leave the darkness. And the darkness will leave you. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will have part 11 for you on our next program. Do join us then. Where there is sin, there is always separation. As a result, there is a great chasm that exists between every person and God. In his book, God's Sermon on His Name, Tom Pennington explains from Exodus 33-34 through 34 how a holy God responds to sinful people and why salvation can be found in the only mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, God's Sermon on His Name, today at thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting us online at The Word Unleashed. Connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.